Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Johnny Marr, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Hi, I'm Jenny Ellisview. Thanks for pressing play. And it was such an honor to get to interview the legendary Johnny Marr for this episode. Johnny and his band are on tour in North America starting later on in August. So get to his website, johnnymarr.com, to get tickets. Welcome to the LSQ podcast. And in this show, I like to dig in with people to their earliest connections to their own creativity, like as a kid and stuff. So even before you ever thought you might be in a band. And so I want to talk about those kinds of things, but also, of course, about this new album, Fever Dreams Parts 1 through 4, the new Johnny Marr album. So thank you so much for joining me. My my question to begin is I want to start by talking about the guitar. And I've been reading your memoir, Set the Boy Free, and I know that it was from a very young age that even just the vision of a guitar struck you as an object of fascination. So tell me a bit about that, about what you remember from why you why you were attracted to it at such a young age. Well, the, there was a little uh, shop at the end of the street that I lived in, uh, in the inner city, uh, uh, when I was five, um, this little shop, like a little lot, you know, like a corner store that sold mops and buckets and brooms and had this little wooden toy guitar in it. And, um, as I say, I was five years of age and every time I went past this store, I was just glued to the window. And my, my mother was still, you know, very young woman at the time was, having it like pull me down the street, like a kind of like a dog that wouldn't move off the, you know, she's like pulling me along there. And um, her and my my dad just were like, listen, he's kind of fixated on this thing. (laughs) Should we buy him this guitar? Uh, So I I got the guitar. I remember the day I got it. It was one of my first memories. And I used to carry that thing around because um, I didn't really get an upgrade until a few years later when I was eight, by which time I just thought this, this thing was, well, it was a toy and it would just, I couldn't really get proper music out of it, but that was my first relationship with a guitar. And then I had an uncle who was very groovy, young Irish guy, and he's got the sideburns and the kind of shit Chelsea boots. My uncle Christie, and he was a handsome fella with like a beetle cut and everything. And when um, my other relatives were playing accordions and harmonicas and doing that kind of stuff, which was a few nights a week in the house every week, you know, all the time, these kind of 
wild wild pies because i grew up around a, a lot of young adults my parent my mother uh, and her family moved over when i was born and uh, she's from a family of 14 and my dad's from a family of five uh, there's a lot of young adults around as i say and i was the first kid and my sister came along and so these parties were were eye-opening for me and very exciting you know a little boy being allowed to stay up late and the deal was really you had to play an instrument and play harmonica and just uh you know not get in the way too much so i saw a lot of um really you know exuberant enjoyment and enthusiasm for pop records of the day motown this would have been and they also being irish they they brought old rock and roll records with them which was a bit of a retro vibe even then. So uh, I was hearing hearing stuff really that older musicians talk about, people like 10, 15, 20 years older than me, but I was, because my parents really loved that Everly Brothers thing, and so I was hearing all of these like rock and roll guitars and all of that. And um, that, so all of the, the, it's all mixed up in my experience of being a kid. And my parents to this day are, um, they're still Irish, and they um, and they're on YouTube all the time, like just, digging all these like singer songwriters and they're like a lot of country music and all of this sort of stuff. Um, so I just grew up around a, a family of absolute crazy music enthusiasts. And it went into, went into me, it, it, you know, and I guess yeah, my imprint, brother, imprinted on you. Yeah. My brother and sister are still into it, but I, I was just, I had to be a musician really. Yeah. I never had my peers and my friends, uh, Bernard Sumner from new order and Billy Duffy from the cult. They, they got into the Sex Pistols and they went to that legendary Manchester Sex Pistols gig when they were teenagers and formed bands. But I, I was, you know, on it from being like a little boy, really. Yeah, I mean, I wonder what even made you like want covet a guitar like yeah. at that point. I mean, was it from seeing like, yeah, bands play on TV or something like that, do you think? Or, or was it that this, this family band sounds like your family was your first band? Yeah. You know, you know what, look, that all followed. The initial impulse was just me loving that object. And then because I was into that object, then I paid attention to bands. It wasn't the other way around. And when I was writing my book, I wondered about this. I was like, where does that come from? And, you know, if you're into Vedanta or Hinduism or Buddhism, you, you know, you get into past lives and all of that sort of stuff. But we won't go there. But it certainly wasn't because I thought I would get fame and fortune and impress boys and impress girls or any of that because you know the 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 thing about it was that when we had proper uh celebrations of uh, christenings or weddings or anything like that um they were always in this this pub this room above this pub in the inner city in manchester and it was the same band who were uh this irish guys playing the pop hits of the day this was in the early 70s and because I knew I was really excited about the, these parties because of course we got to run around and have like lots of fizzy drinks and my cousins by this time are running around and stuff. Uh, but these guys would play these tunes and I would watch them set up when I was a little boy, I would have been maybe seven or eight. And I saw these adults come and set up their amplifiers and take the guitars out of the cases. And I remember being aware that this was a job. I saw them the year before and they weren't particularly good, but I thought they were amazing. And, um, I saw these men do it. And I think that was the first time I started to realize that, you know, adults who weren't necessarily on the television, that you could do it. You you could, 
if you learn to play, that's a thing that you could do. And um, I think being around, seeing those guys setting up their equipment was, I mean, that was like see, watching the moon landing for me. Yeah. yeah. And do you remember when you, cause you coveted the toy guitar for so long and then you got it. Do you remember how it felt when you first like held it and played it and how did you figure out how to play it? You know, this, this might sound a little mythological or whatever, but I, I, it's kind of like when you get a pet or a, a child comes into your life or a lover or something like that. And you, it just feels like this was always like meant to be, you know, this is right. You know, that feeling when another a thing comes into your life and it kind of completes you a little bit, you know, some people feel that out when they get a partner or when a child, when they have a child or, or even with a pet, you're kind of like, Oh, I know this soul. And, uh, I just put, started putting my fingers on the strings and then, it, you know, it's like I had plastic strings. You couldn't really do very much. But so that one we're talking about, when I got to about six or seven, because I, I was watching anything that had music on it on the television. I'm sure it was the same in the United States. I would watch. So often it would be some really corny comedians weekly show and then they'd have a music slot on and it was often Tom Jones or Inglebert Humperdinck or Andy Williams or some, and you go, oh no. But occasionally it would be like uh, some kind of mainstream pop band and they'd have a guitar player on it. And um, I'd be all over that. I'd, and I'd just be, so I'd, I'd analyze, you know, analyze these early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. That was as a little child. So then, when my parents kind of got the dough together, I got, uh, and they knew I was sort of really obsessed with it. They, I, I got a guitar, an acoustic guitar at eight, and um, and I, I got a chord book with it. And I, at the same time, I got very, very lucky because the, I bought a record of 45 around about the same time, and it, it was a T-Rex Jeepster. It would have been 1971, something like that. And the chords I was learning to play were in the song so I, I learned to play along with the record and then that was I was off then I started uh I was buying 45s and I was playing along with these 45s and you know all of us uh music fans or creative people all of us think that you know the time when we were children or the time when we were teenagers or formative whatever was the best time because it's such a subjective rite of passage you know but I will argue that, that being someone who's starting off playing the guitar and buying 45s in 1972, 73 was pretty lucky because it was stuff like The Sweet and Mark Bolan and David Bowie, Gene Genie was out and Rebel Rebel came out. and That, that was a real, a real game changer for me because when I learned to play Rebel Rebel, everyone around was like, God, this guy's good, you know. Um, it came quite naturally to me. But so those values of, those 45 sparks i was a really big fan of spark singles that they've that's never really left me you know the, what i'm doing now with my own records if i can do something that has a little bit of glam rock in it and as shades of bowie's glam years or sparks or uh t-rex or the sweet or anything like that, that that to me is like a bit of a bonus um and i was like that in the smiths as well you know you listen to some of those songs like sheila take a bow or um there's a whole bunch of them that have got kind of a glam vibe to them. So it never really left me because there's, 
I, there's a connection between being a songwriter and the making of records and being a guitar player. I think I didn't ever want to really, I didn't want to want to be Jimi Hendrix, which is, you know, quite, quite a good idea. And, um, and my friends, you know, we would then, when I got a little older, my started hanging out with my other friends who wanted to play guitar and stuff. They were all like listening to these rock guys and wanting to play the guitar bits. But I just got into this thing when I want, I wanted to sort of play the whole record really. So that's kind of, one of the reasons why my guitar style turned out to be the way it is, is sort of quite busy, big, sort of trying to play, play all, try to play the whole thing, you know. This sounds like a piano bit and the strings bit goes like this. That's why my, my style got to be so melodic and so busy, I guess. I'm intrigued about like when you started to see people playing music who you related to, because you mentioned this being a kid and seeing that it could be a job, you know, that could be a vocation. And that's, that's encouraging, you know, where, where you were coming from, it was encouraging to see that this thing you like could be a vocation, but it sounds like maybe these people like, like Bolin who wouldn't have been on the same show as Engelbert Humperdinck, obviously, but was there something about that, era uh, where you could see the that freaks were in the mix too and that if you felt a little freaky yourself that like oh it's not just a vocation but it's a safe space for freaks 100 percent. well two things one was that mark boland as you say was my first absolute hero because he played the guitar and i loved the sound of the records they sounded otherworldly to me they you know you got to remember as well in the early 70s it's all very easy for me to paint this picture of this incredibly innovative time but you had to hear like three osmond's records to you know to wait to hear to wait to hear driving saturday jeepster sounded really otherworldly and and actually if you listen to it now it's lo-fi deliberately lo-fi so he's trying to make a 50s record compared to yeah compared to the other pop things that were going on in the day and he was very beautiful i was getting that sort of signals you know about androgyny and i was very small myself and so he was like a hero, really. I could really relate to him. And the words, you know, his, his words, which are nonsensical, really, but didn't really matter. This sort of painting these pictures, you know, the first single I ever bought, you know, he's, he's sort of going, you know, you, you, you've got the universe reclining in your hair. I'm just a jeepster for your love. I was like, well, I have no idea what this means, but I know it's kind of not really what I'm hearing in school. And it suggested another world, which... I always had a kind of curiosity about anyway. And anyone who's ever read, I didn't know this at the time, of course, but anyone who's ever read Colin Wilson's The Outsider can find out about what that's all about. But um, this idea of, you know, there's got to be something beyond these other senses. I kind of, growing up in a very religious house with a lot of kind of Catholic iconography really played into my sort of psychology quite a lot, really. Uh, There was a lot of that around sort of a lot of the otherworldly sort of stuff. And um, uh, the spook, you know, my house, my, my parents were no stranger to the spook, which definitely fed into my, I was very sort of sort of sensitive little kid, believe it or not, and very, very quiet, uh, which is even harder to believe. But uh, what was Wait, sorry, what's the spook? Uh, you know, well, if, you, if you're a little kid and you've got seriously heavy Catholic kind of iconography around, you just really wonder what this Holy Ghost business is all about. You know, people speaking in tongues and you're getting a lot of stories of a lot of uh, imagery of things that you can't see and that are in the, in the ether and 
uh, that was very mysterious and a bit scary, but also quite alluring to me. And that's never really left me the idea of like things going on beyond this, beyond the senses, you know. Yeah. And so how did it begin to evolve into seeing the guitar as this vehicle for expressing yourself? And, and how did your early attempts at songwriting kind of begin? So we lived I lived in the inner city, I guess, for American ears, that means like a sort of seven minute walk from downtown, which is great. You know, I didn't know it was really exciting. You know, there's a lot of traffic around and the the Manchester Apollo venue was was there. So it was kind of gigs around the corner and uh, a lot of kind of fashion, which I was very excited about. That was a real kind of working class thing. And um, I was putting sort of chords together and then writing my own little silly songs. But the school I went to was kind of edgy and I didn't really want to draw too much attention to myself. Um, but anyway, the, the houses were all being knocked down and we got relocated to the suburbs, to the south of Manchester, which is, we call them housing estates. It's the projects, really. And But it was the biggest projects in, the one that I got moved to was the biggest housing project in, in all of Europe. I think it still is called Widdenshaw. Uh, and that was amazing because all of us, everybody from the kind of low economic places, some slums, we all got relocated to this huge project. So it meant there was just loads of kids everywhere, loads and loads of kids of my own age, which meant girls, football, violence, and other kids who were into music, uh, particularly the older kids. And um, I sort of kind of just made it my business to sort of uh, you kind of seek out other young boys who were into music. So I got a drummer first and he was actually pretty good. And then my best friend, he and I got relocated together. And he, so he moved up to just a few doors down from me. And I talked him into being the singer. Um, and me and him started writing these kind of little songs that were still bowling ripoffs. And then that was me kind of running a group from then on, really. And uh, I guess about 45 years later, nothing's really changed. I'm sort of, I took it really seriously then. And I, take it really seriously now but that was the start of it and we would get together in someone's house and I quickly learned that uh it would be very frustrating if there wasn't something to play you know and you like everybody we started off playing we used to play rebel rebel because I could play that as I say and um there was a couple of Rod Stewart songs that we used to play and then we used to play like that band Thin Lizzy and then this is all before punk happened and uh, and then it was my job to try and find a proper place to rehearse and you know try and find school halls and hassle the local priest to let us use the church hall and that just fell on my shoulders and so I was off really that was my apprenticeship and that was my day-to-day thinking was all about that and then actual real so-called real life like going to school and um, being you know conventional was all that would come second really to this sort of mission that I was on to like form a band. Yeah. So that's where, that was where, that was where my head was at. And then, you know, getting a little older, let's say this is pre-punk, like a sort of typical young boy in the Western world who liked music, you know, I grew my hair long and I got into these rock bands and one of my pals was, he was super into like deep purple. So I knew loads about them. I couldn't quite get with that. 
but my sister, luckily, I was really tight with my sister and she really liked disco and she liked Motown. And then the guy, as I said, who was the singer in my band, he had a sister and so it was great having all these girls around. And she really, she really liked soul music. So I never strayed too far away. You know, I went to see a couple of these heavy rock bands and because I was so tight with my sister, I was like, she never wanted to go at these places. I thought, this is a real girl-free zone. And that's never a good sign on any level. Uh, so, you know, I was very lucky that I had a lot of girls around me and um, they stopped me straying too far. And uh, yeah, I, I just became a real student of everything I could possibly consume in, in every way that that means as well. So I started really wanting to live the life of a musician and walk the walk uh, and kind of still am that way now, really. Yeah, you. it sounds like, yeah, you had ideas about it. You had an ethos about a band, about if you're going to have a band, here's what it, here's how it's going to go. And and you took that by the reins early on. I'm curious what ideas you had about songwriting specifically, like at that age, when you're starting your first bands, what what did you think a song needed to be? And, and also similarly with your guitar playing, I, I'm curious how you sort of established your own guidelines for yourself about what you wanted your guitar playing to be, because obviously you have a, a signature style. Well, all the records I liked that I really liked tended to be 45s, even as I got older, you know. So they usually started out with a hook. And that was something that we were re- I was really aware of with the Smiths. Nearly every song starts with a guitar hook. And um, another band that was really important to me is, uh, at the time as well was, was Roxy Music. So I always liked unusual singers. You know, people that just sort of did the right thing, the sort of expected thing, was, was, wasn't really as interesting to me as when I heard an unusual voice. Uh, so Brian Ferry is still one of my favourite sort of singers for that reason. Or Susie, I, I know you're a huge fan of Susie. Man, absolutely, huge fan of Susie when she came along. Still listen to Susie several times a week. So what happened then was people kind of started asking me to be in their bands around about 14. You know, over the years since, really, I guess it's a left of Smith's but. Even in the Smith days, I was collaborating with like Billy Bragg and Kirsty McCollin and Talking Heads. And I, I usually explain, you know, people ask me about, because I, I got famous for being in a group first and, and, you know, a band member in Smith's days, which is great, fine. But then, because I played with so many different people, I've had to explain that I, I've always been this way. So I, to get back to the story, like 14 a friend of mine said, oh, is this band called Sister Ray? And I kind of heard it. I'd, I'd heard of Sister Ray because like like everyone, me and my friends were di- discovering the Velvet Underground and I knew the song. But they'd had a record out and they were adults. And my friend said, oh, they want you to join the band. And I was like, well, I don't even know them, you know, and they're adults. And I was like, well, I had enough about me to be like, well, they, do they, they know I'm 14, right? This is like a freak show. And he's like, listen, they just want you to come and meet him. So I went to the pub. I mean, I, I kind of looked the part and I, I was pretty streetwise by then. But uh, so I went to the, this pub and met with these guys and they were really determined, you know, they're really adamant that I come and then they had a, a few shows and stuff. Now, they were really loud and had this reputation for being kind of wild on stage and everything. And uh, and they'd made a record. And I just, I was like, OK, well, I'll go and join this band. It's going to be scary because they are reprobates and... I don't know them and they are based in 
the red light area of Manchester, which is called Wally Range. Uh, so I had to go there three nights a week with my guitar. And it was pretty gnarly. And we used to play in this basement. And I looked, but I thought, when, this will really bring me on. I will be a, a, a much better. And that actually was right. You know, I learned to play at really high volume and I sort of learned about being around adults. And so my first proper show was with Sister Ray and the lead singer picked a fight with, there was two other bands on, picked a fight with both the other bands before we even did our set. And it was pretty wild, but it was a good apprenticeship. And then I'd just be invited to this other guy who was a very, very talented guy in our neighbourhood. Uh, he sadly didn't really make it past his 20s, but he was a very, very talented guy. He asked me to be in his band, and I learned quite a lot from being in his band. So people were, always, were inviting me to be in the bands, which is what happens now. You know, the last thing I did was Billy Eilish and Hans Zimmer. It's, I'm still the same as I was when I was a kid. It's just now I'm not on the projects. What are some of the things that really made you pivot or broadened your view of the kind of music you wanted to, to be making in terms of like an artist that came along that, that where you're, you're like, holy shit, wait a minute, I hadn't considered this yet. Well, I went to see Patti Smith when I was 14 and none of my pals wanted to pony up for the money for the ticket. So I went on my own and I was right at the front and it was 1978 and uh, she came out and it was like I was witnessing an incantation. And as I was watching it, I was like transported somewhere else. And it was like someone had cut a square doorway or window into a portal to another world. I used to look at the radio a bit like that, as well as being a portal into another world. And from about halfway through the second song, I was like, I am looking into another world. I want to be in there. And then the next day, I had a paper route and I was walking around with paper route. It was a beautiful spring day or summer day or something. I remember being a really blue sky and I was like, the world is different as from today. My life is different. The world is different. I've been through an experience. And then the other thing was that the only ones, this band from London put out the first single, which is called Lovers of Today. And I heard it and I was just like, this is the band for me. It was My friends were into punk and I was into punk and we're in a new wave. Television was a big game changer for me. Richard Lloyd, particularly the guitar player on there and Tom Verlaine and the, the lyrics, the imagery in that obviously it was tied in with Patti Smith. Patti Smith opened a lot of doors for me. I discovered William Burroughs. For, you know, this is an amazing thing about pop culture. Your heroes and their enthusiasms and their influences become yours if you are interested enough. So I found out about Oscar Wilde from the New York Dolls and Burroughs and Rambo and these people that Patti Smith was influenced by. So this sort of cosmic poetry from the underground was part of being a Patti Smith fan at 14, 15. So that was a big thing. And then, holy shit, this beautiful young guy from London who's super streetwise when the only ones happened. This is before he'd even written Another Girl, Another Planet. And I just was like a super fan. And I mean, Andy Rourke, it was the bass player and the Smiths was my, my school buddy. And so of course, you know, whatever he and I were into the same sort of things, but I was like, I always took things to the nth degree. So I had to kind of go and see him in other cities and whether I had a ticket or not. And, you know, I was like, I was like the only one sort of super fan really. And uh, Peter was really important to me. And he, cause uh, I guess like bowling, he was little and he was a front man with a guitar and, um, you know, he, he was still modern, but 
he had this kind of great poetic, perfect poetic, poetic sense about him. I mean, we all know another girl on another planet, you know, and, but that first Only Ones album is, to me, was like, it's like the Velvet Underground or Sid Barrett or something like that for my generation. And uh, yeah, so Patty Smith uh, and the Only Ones brought the kind of um, poetic sensibility to me in the lyrics and the imagery, but also the way they appear to be living their lives. Obviously, so there's a there's a great deal of bohemianism in that and um, and therefore drug use. And that was all part of it for me. Like, okay, I'm on board, you know, that's sort of, I, I can relate to that. And then very quickly after that, then bands like the Psychedelic Furs came out. Uh, I mean, you know, we've all got these lists of bands that we really love and it ends up just being like a roll call. But the very important thing in the formation of the Smiths was that the Buscocks were very, very successful chart act in the UK. And they were... They were, they were older than me, but you could relate to them. You know, they were guys that you'd seen around, you know, and they were having these really, not only were they having success, but they were kind of better than everybody else. You know, this Manchester band were pretty much better than everybody coming out of London, except for the only ones. But, you know, they were in there with the Clash and the Pistols, but they had the gay singer who was doing this freaky singing that was powerful and um that galvanised a lot of Manchester musicians, you know, because we lived in the provinces, you know, anyone who's living outside of Los Angeles or New York, uh, you know, maybe in cities like Cleveland or Chicago or, you know, wherever, but particularly those kind of industrial towns will know that sort of feeling where you're in a town that's really, really happening, but it's outside. Detroit's a good example, but it has to create its own scene uh, that has it, then it is, has its own codes and, you kind of get defined by that, you know, and uh, the Buscocks did that for people in Manchester. Uh, so when the time came uh, for me to uh, form the Smiths, all of that was already really in me, you know. And you asked before, there was a thing when you asked about the freaky thing with bowling. One thing, just going back a little bit, that was for anyone who's still listening, <laughs> was that as a little kid, um, the Rolling Stones album high tide and green grass big hits high tide and green grass oh no no it's the other one through the past darkly the second one was in a lot of parents had that record my friend's parents it was in a lot of houses they were an old band for my generation but i looked at this band and they were all freaky on it but particularly keith richards uh on the album through the past darkly seeing that record and putting that face of that guy with the guitar playing was a real key thing for me. I was like, oh, okay, well, he looks like he goes to bed later than 10 o'clock at night, but he, he's making this sound and he kind of runs the band. He's the kind of engine of the band and he's the, the symbol of the band and, he, and he's a man, but he's freaky, you know, and very blurry. He was, certainly wasn't macho and he just didn't look like a regular, none of them looked like a straight boy, you know, and... um that's never really left me either, really, I don't think. It's interesting you mentioned like these kind of like industrial towns and the Detroit thing. You know, I wonder if coming from maybe maybe even generic suburbs as well that are that are more bucolic or whatever, there's there's even more of an appeal to like being a freak. You know, if you have it in you and you want to have a defining sound, you know, you think about like Detroit and Iggy and the MC5 and stuff like that, where it's like more shocking to be a certain kind of androgynous 
freak if you're from a very meat and potatoes kind of place, you know? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it was what was kind of dead cool. You know, B-52s were kind of a pretty key thing that happened to me and my pals, you know, because when you talked about that, I don't know whether I, I describe Athens as bucolic, but it might be. But because um, I think they're from Athens, right? Is that right? B-52s. They were so original and it had dead cool guitar on it and they were successful pretty quick in the UK and clever, all, all of that stuff. Couldn't really be pigeonholed. You know, they were a pop group and unashamedly pop. That, you know, that's a good example of being kind of freaky in the not obvious way, you know, not in, you know what I mean? That's, it's not like Patti Smith was freaky or Keith Richards was freaky, but uh, yeah, I liked outsiders, you know, I liked, I love when outsiders hit the bullseye in the mainstream. The Smiths were, you know, that was a, that was a really satisfying thing with the Smiths when we were on television in the UK, because uh, you have to be, there was this, this, you know, TV show, Top of the Pops, that was like a institution uh, in England. You know, like a lot of straight families were watching it. And, you know, I would see Bowling on there. I would see Bowie or what all these people have been talking about. And so for when we got on there, I mean, you have to have a hit to be on it, you know, but it, it's like the f- gate crash in the mainstream. Pet Shop Boys do it very well. And um, I guess Billie Eilish is doing it now, you know, just like. Absolutely. Yeah, someone, you know, someone you, you watch them and not. Well, firstly, they have to have a, good, a decent track. You have to like the music, but you think, oh, yeah, that, that person, I could hang with them. That'd be an interesting night hanging out with that person, you know, and and they're they're outsiders and taking their cues from the underground. And because I can't can you imagine if all of those amazing people in, in all of the arts didn't exist. It'd just be all of those horrible vanilla people uh, with their vanilla rules and their vanilla values. And, you know, ugh, thank God for outsiders, you know. Yeah. How did you start to develop a sense of who makes a good collaborator for you? You know, we've talked about how you've been collaborating for your entire musical career and certainly in more recent years, whether it was with the Cribs or with Modest Mouse, these younger bands that you were like, you know what, I'm in now. Like the making that decision, for instance, to join Modest Mouse, not just produce Modest Mouse, you know? Yeah. Or not just produce the cribs, but just be like, no, I want to be in this band. What do you what do you derive from those experiences? Like, you know, I guess what I like is blank. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I t- if I tell you exactly what happened, here, what happened, it'll explain my sort of mentality, I guess. So Modest Mouse, I, my manager said to me, oh, uh, Sony got on me and they, what, this Isaac Brock from Modest Mouse wants to get your number. And um, but anyway, so Isaac called me up and uh, I'd already been aware of Modest Mouse. For, it's a whole other story, but I knew the music and I had no idea how they came about it. it uh, they were really intriguing to me because I, I really liked it. But often, and I think they're a good example of this, often with bands you can go, oh, okay, well, the singer's, the singer's thing is kind of into Jim Morrison and maybe the drummer, you know, they've got a bit of a Chili Peppers vibe. Okay, this is, you can either inspired by Radiohead or whoever Fugazi or whatever but Modest Mouse I was just like I don't know what this is but I like it uh so when Isaac called me and said hey listen do you want to be in the band I was like I don't know you but you're an interesting guy and the person I was when I was 14 when I joined Sister Ray is still there and I was like well 
this is going to be, I tell you what, I can't say I'm going to join, but we'll go over and we'll try it out for about 10 days and maybe I'll help you make this album. You know, it's be interesting. I had no idea about what was going to happen. So I walk into this room with Isaac and the very first night we started writing and we hit up with the first single, that song Dashboard, and that's a whole other story. But bit by bit, with each day, more and more members of this band started to appear. Eric, bass player, came the next day and we're jamming and me and Isaac have written a couple of songs and then we start joining in and then one drummer arrives and then and then another drummer arrives and then some guy with, then there's a steel and then there's a banjo and there's a trumpet and like, what? The? <laughs> and there was a, a really interesting collection of people and um, we got about four or five days into it and we're jamming and I'm standing in a room with these people who I'm starting to like pretty quickly I'm standing out and I'm thinking, I have no idea what this music is, but it feels really good. So I got on the management and said, okay, I'm going to stay here for a little while longer. And what happens, and this is what happened with the Cribs, is that when I'm in a band, I'm really all in, but I get really attached to the, to what we're doing, right? So we start, these songs are really immediately, they're part of my life now. This is within days. I'm like, well, I, I want to... I want to see how this song's turned out. I want to see how that song's turned out. We've now got five songs. We've now got six. We've now got seven. I'm waking up four o'clock in the morning, really jet lagged with this Radio Shack cassette. And I'm coming up with, oh, here's the, here's the other bit for this song. Here's the missing bit. And taking it to the band rehearsals. And then it's a really productive, inspired time. They, partly because they got me over there from England and paying for me to be in a hotel. They're all like getting there on time and all this shit. And they don't know me yet, so it's all everyone's behaving themselves. And so a lot of stuff was happening. And very quickly, a brotherhood happens. There's a bit of a cheesy way of putting it. It's like being army buddies or being in a... You go through a project together. And certainly then when you make a record and you rehearse the songs, and I'm living in Portland, by this time I'm away from my family, we go to Mississippi... It would have just been weird for me to bail. I really love these guys at this point. We've been, we're going through stuff. We've argued and we've, they, well, they got drunk with me. I've been, and we've kind of had these funny conversations. We're becoming friends and then, no, and you, we're, we're becoming really tight really quick. So um, it's about loyalty, really. It just would have been too weird to bail. From the outside, it looks like some career move or some management thing or this kind of smart kind of thing. It's much more natural than that, driven by music. So with the Cribs, for example, we had this idea. Me and Ryan bumped into each other. We didn't know each other. And he said, I've got this idea, Johnny Marr and the Cribs, we do a song together. And I really like the Cribs. And I was like, that sounds like a fun thing. We'll do a 45, four songs, two songs on the A side, two songs on the B side. This was at the end of my time in Modest Mouse. And I needed to get back to England. I've been living in Portland and blah, blah, blah. So I come back to England, I go in the rehearsal room with the Cribs and I had some ideas for songs and I'd play some ideas and everyone joined in and within a couple of hours we'd written this song and then we'd written another and then we'd written another and by the end of the week we're like, well, we may as well do an album and the same thing happened and then we're, we're tight. Yeah, I want to say that truly, and I can't speak for everyone, but nobody thinks when you join Modest Mouse or the Cribs, that it's calculating. Everybody just thinks, wow, that's fucking awesome. Johnny Mars and Modest Mouse now. Like, it's like, a, I mean, because you, you know, in the vernacular of you don't have to do that, you know what I mean? Like, you could make your own. It's just like, it's just like, wow, it just demonstrates that you have this enthusiasm, that you could have this enthusiasm for 
newer music that you're like, you know what, I, I can't, I'm attached. I can't not be part of this. I have to be part of this too. Is like, you know, if I might say pretty fucking cool. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also I've got to say, I'm very lucky that my life is set up. My life has developed in a way that unusually uh, for me before the Smiths, when I was like running around being in sister Ray and forming these bands and all of that, uh, I met my girlfriend I was 15 and she was 14. So as a young boy, I found my soulmate who's very, very smart and made, she made me brave and she's the other side of the same coin. And she also loves the Stooges and this mission that we were going to be on, you know? So when I got kicked out of my parents' house for many times, my girlfriend supported me, you know, and um, she took a job somewhere and, she was only 15 herself and all of that. And then that really helped when we were getting through up through all the Smiths high times and low times and, you know, jump ahead 25 years or whatever. We were, we're a family and my wife, uh, as then she was, and my children were like, Hey, my dad's joined this band in Portland. They're fucking great. And at last he's in a band we like. And um, everybody around me from being a, 14, 15 knows that that's my thing. You know, I just pull everyone into the slipstream with me, really, into the wake of my, of my, whatever it is, my projects are, but not everybody's as, as lucky to have that understanding and support network. You know, that's what it is. That's what my family are, you know. And, you know, sometimes, and, and it means, it sounds all very groovy when it's successful, but, it, you know, it means, you know, my kids grew up with, my, the house that my kids grew up in, it wasn't so much like we had a studio in the house, it's that, the house was a studio and they lived in it. You know, they lived in a studio <laughs> that, that had furniture in it and, and places from, but it was all taken over by musicians. So they, and everyone lived with us, you know, there's like kind of like a sort of communal kind of vibe. And so whether I would have been successful or not, it, it would have been set up that way anyway, because I got my partner, she was in whether I, when I had jack shit, less than jack shit, because I had a fine and no job. She was, on, she was on board. I was like, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm a guitar player. 50, I'm a guitar player and I'm going to have a guitar player's life. And she was like, okay, well, I'll be a guitar player's girlfriend. And how's that sound? I was like, fucking great. Amazing. Yeah. So when you were approaching this group of songs for your new album, and whenever you're going to do an album that is a Johnny Marr album in whatever incarnation that that is over time, like, do you is it a whole different affair like how do you approach you know quote unquote your own music differently and specifically with this set of songs which I know you've said you you kind of wanted to go a bit more inward with and, and do a little bit differently so when the Smiths did the Queen is Dead I was a slightly more grown-up version of that boy who had to find the rehearsal spaces and that find the record company and all of that that was just my role it's great you know I mean well, when it was great, it was great. And we'd had a number one album in the UK with Meets Murder and we were big, we were a big deal and a lot of bands wanted to be us and that was made, made me very proud and we were unique and we were having success. And then I had this moment in my house, one afternoon, we were being talked about like we were as important as the Kinks and we these big, big shot writers, John Savage and... Nick Kent, people like that talking about as like being out, you know, defi- career, you know, generation defining and all that. And I was like 22, maybe at that time going into right. And I, I just remember going, holy shit, the bar's got to go even higher. 
wow, uh, just had this moment kind of freezing, not so much fear, but, oh, okay, what's this going to look like? You know, uh, we're being described as in terms of like the who and the kinks. This re- I hope re- this really doesn't sound like false mod- modesty because it's not meant to. It was scary shit. It turned out, it's okay now I can say it because it turned out. But um, is to answer your question, I was like, oh, and I just kind of knew that I was going to have to put myself in a kind of deep sort of space uh, it was probably going to be very unhealthy mentally and physically to make that next record. Now, that might have been a wrong, young, naive assumption, and I didn't have anyone around me at that time, the band didn't have a manager. I wish we'd had someone older. So you doesn't really have to be that way. But it doesn't matter. Maybe it did. So I, that's what happened. I went in and making that album, and, you know, I lived off sort of, you know, I lived off fresh air and drugs and and it, and to write that record and and it was a pretty precarious existence and it and you can hear it in the music and it it worked right so I think that's what 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 it's all about when we shut out the outside world and inhabit this sort of space uh, mentally over the next time, however long it takes and I'm gonna I'm gonna forget birthdays other people's birthdays of course I'm gonna like you know lose the dog. Uh, sometimes it used to be I'm going to get wasted and what and I'm going to take nocturnal hours if I don't want to sleep for three days or if I do want to sleep for two days whatever and we get a record out I'm not saying that every record I've done has been debauched it's just been this sort of it's going to be a mission and I kind of in the modest mouse days it was like I'm going to run 15 miles most days right and drive everyone crazy I'm going to drink lots of white tea and uh, meditate you know so it's not all about just being some old rocker and going into this album I wondered what life was going to be like at the end of it and I started it before the pandemic so I got really more than a bargain for I had no idea that the world was going to go through a pandemic and you know like some sci-fi kind of nervous breakdown but because of my history and because of the the culture I come out of, and maybe because I started out in a big band with a lot at stake, when I make albums that I write, or I'm involved in the writing of, it tends to be a bit of a mission, you know? The other was the same. You know, what we're going to do, how are we going to live making this record? You know, with, with the Dusk album, we set up all these projectors in the studio and all the lights out. This is all day, every day. It was intense and it was hard going. But we got we created the atmosphere, you know, I guess I'd like to think, oh, I can get up at eight o'clock and go for a run and then I'll go in the studio and I'll do a few hours work and I'll make some calls and then I'll have lunch. And then I don't know whether music that I like has ever been made like that. It would be really nice, but I just don't, I'd love to do it that way, but I just don't. So we finished the last show on the call, the previous album called The Comet, we finished the last show and then I was supposed to go on vacation and um, two days after the last show, I was like, now's, okay, now's the time to do a new record. I wasn't going to be like, oh, okay, I need to go in some heavy, really weird, dark place or I need to, you know, start fasting or any of that sort of stuff. But uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. I had, anyway, I got the title Fever Dreams Part 1 to 4 straight away which is not usually the case. And then I decided that it should be a double album. So I thought, all right, okay, this is kind of going to be kind of ambitious. And then out of the blue, I got the call to do the Bond film. So 
I, I started writing a couple of songs and then that got interrupted. I wanted to do the movie. And then while I was doing the movie, because it was, a, you know, was, you will know there's downtime on movies. So I wrote the song Receiver there and I lightning people, I wrote a couple of things. But then when the movie was over, the song came out with Billy. And then right after that, it was pandemic. So I'd already started this album that was called Fever Dreams, parts one to four. And then we went into this pandemic. So I was going to do a record anyway. And the atmosphere of the empty streets. And then I started work. The, my studio is in this factory, old factory on the outskirts of town. And I, I have to confess that I, I did break the law. I, so I was going into this place. The car park probably holds about 500 cars. My everyday man was the only car in the car park. And I would go in there every day on my own and um, be in this factory. And I just started writing and carving it out and trying stuff out and crafting and hoping for inspiration. Then I'll come home and then be awake in the night and driving myself a little nuts and forgetting where I left the dog and locking myself out the, out the house with the keys inside and forgetting birthdays and just being that kind of preoccupied guy who is just all about trying to finish these songs and dig in and do it. So that's the long, yeah, it's very interesting. Brief. It sounds like, yeah, you always need your, you're committed and you need something to make it to, to delineate the out, the creative time from the rat from normal life or else it doesn't feel right. Or it doesn't feel like you're committed enough or immersed enough in it while it's happening. And as you say, the pandemic put us all in this immersive trippy experience. So you didn't have to do the, fasting or the or the white tea or whatever it might be but nonetheless like that's the that's the environment how do you know when it's good how do you know when you're you know what is the signal to you that you're like yeah this is the good shit this is what I was here to do this time you have to be buzzing and by a definition when you're working on something and this will be the same for people who are writing or painting or whatever you are, it's so subjective. You, while you're doing it, you're buzzing. And then you have the moment where if you really keep getting doubts about four lines you've written or a chord change, you know, while you're doing it, you're really buzzing. You think this is the greatest thing. Uh, this is better than anything Johnny Mitchell did. This is better than anything Wire did or, you know, that and that should be the way it is. But then the next day or a few hours later or whatever, if you are having doubts it's not good enough you have to rewrite you have to you have to keep going you have to go at it again so occasionally something happens and you're just absolutely loving it and you're just loving it and you're like okay and you want to hear it in the car on the way back and you want to hear it when you woke wake up in the morning you don't think oh man i've reinvented the wheel aren't i amazing but you just kind of like i'm buzzing off this and this is expressing what I'm about. And I think my audience are going to dig it. And then a fair amount of craft comes into it and tenacity. Uh, you can have something that you're like, this is nearly working, but there's something not quite right. And then you get into the technicalities and I'm not the first person that I say this, but quite a lot of what anything creative is a lot of uh, craft and there's nothing wrong with that either. But if there's something that I've kind of known now that particularly with words, if there's something that, you just sort of keep coming back to and doubting and doubting. You you have to you have to throw it away and trash it and and replace it. So it's a lot of stuff that goes on in your mind, but some stuff comes really easy. This song I had a few years ago, Easy Money from Playland. The whole song came when I was running, and I was like, "This is either 
the most annoying fucking song I've ever heard or other people are going to like it. And I had to record it. I had the tune and I had the hook and all of that. And I had to record it. And it was one of those things that I recorded that song, made the record on the tour bus. We, we replaced the drums later. And everyone on the bus kept saying, oh, put your tune on, put your tune on. You know, everyone was buzzing about it. And then, you know, of course, being a live band, going out and trying stuff out in front of audiences, which, of course, none of us had that privilege uh, recently. Uh, but that that's always been the, the test for, for rock bands. And then what happens is you put, this has never been any different. You put your record out and you cross your fingers and you hope that first and foremost, your, your audience are happy with you for doing it. People who like you think it's a good listen. But when I was younger, particularly in the Smith's days, my deal was, I was like, okay, the, the three guys in the band, do they love what I'm doing? Okay, do we love what we're doing collectively? And then it was the people around us, because we were really in a cocoon. It was one of the things that made the Smiths what we were. We really lived in this very isolated, ultimately unhealthy, but very useful bubble with this sort of self-imposed wall around us. And the roadies were our friends. We, My guitar tech was my school friend. And Everything happened, a lot of things happened in my house, HQ. And, um, you know, I'm a, I made a bit of money. So the first thing I did was I bought a big house and my friends moved in. I wanted to impress them. I wanted to impress my friends first and foremost. I wanted my peers to think it was dead cool. Then I wanted fans to like it, of course. And then the media and critical, they were right, right at the bottom of the list, but they were still there. Whereas now, this might sound so obvious, but once I'm buzzing about it and I feel like, okay, yeah, this is as good as I can do now. The job's done. The mission's kind of complete. First and foremost, I want the audience to be pleased that it's, that it's out. And a lot of that is to do with getting older, but mostly to do with that I've, over the years now, built up a, a pretty interesting sort of relationship with my audience. And, you know, yeah, they're, they're fans of the Smiths, some of them, but now they're, they're just fans of my whole trip, really. So... I think I sort of know them a little bit, you know, and that's kind of good enough for me, really. Yeah, you know who you are. And so you have faith that they know who you are kind of thing, you know? Yeah, but also, yeah, and also you change. You have sort of hopefully evolve and you're enthused. You're, you're certainly as an artist, you know, your influences change. And if I want to quote Joan Didion in a lyric or Sylvia Plath in a title or um, whatever it is, you know, then um, I know that they're, they're interested in that because that's what I'm about, you know, or, um, or singing about myself, you know, singing about my own, where I'm at. I, I have them in mind, you know, these days. And um, that, that's, yeah, it's a nice thing, but I've always been really into change. You know, I think I don't really, I've never wanted to be exactly the same person three years later ever really, you know, I mean, your values stay the same. I mean, getting very philosophical now, but I, I don't want to know what, what I'm going to be doing in three years' time or what I'm going to be reading or the kind of songs I'm going to be writing or the way my guitar playing's going. I, 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 I want to discover it as I get there, you know, with a bit of work and head scratching and locking myself out of the house with the keys inside. Amazing. Thank you so much, Johnny. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to talk with you and an honour. Thank Thanks you very so much for inviting me. It's very thought-provoking questions, like made me kind of uh, muse a little bit. Not the usual, I appreciate it. I still honestly can't believe I got to Zoom with Johnny fucking Marr and ask him so many of my nerdy questions. Truly one I'll never forget. Thanks again, Johnny Marr, for that amazing conversation. 
And Johnny's on tour in the U.S. starting later in August. You can get tickets at johnnymar.com. Thanks again for listening to the LSQ podcast. In a few weeks, there's a new one with the U.K. hip-hop and spoken word artist Kay Tempest. And if you've got questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at JennyLSQ. LSQ.